I was I was reading a thing about Facebook and what what goes on behind the scenes there, and like there's a lot of that. That's just like there's some really bad stuff going on, and they know it's going on, but everyone's just doing a tiny little portion of it. So it's it's important for them to keep their job, and of course it is. What we shouldn't expect any individual worker to sacrifice themselves to stand up to the dominance of Facebook. But when there's when all of those workers combine, they combine to make something awful, and that's happening across the globe. And maybe some people are, are evil and are deliberately doing evil, but actually most people are just trying to feed their kids. You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and in corporate media. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's part two of my two-part conversation with Jackson Winter on the 2001 edition of Carl Polanyi's 1944 book, The Great Transformation. This is also part two of a larger four-part series on the book. Parts one and two with Jackson is two smart layperson MMTers trying to come to terms with the depth of what we just read and connecting it to our lives and MMT. Parts three and four are with Asad Zaman, a PhD economist with many lectures, papers, and posts on the topic, links to which you can find in the show notes to part one with Professor Zaman next week. I'll summarize the book in next week's introduction. Even experienced MMTers can't know this stuff. You think you understand the foundation of our economy and society, but as described in The Great Transformation, there's another foundation beneath it. Before we start the interview, I'm making an announcement at the request of a patron, and that is the podcast Pod Save America, which is hosted by former Obama staffers, has millions of followers, many of who like to think of themselves as progressives. Unfortunately, although the hosts say many smart things, they still live solidly in a pay-for, scarcity, zero-sum world. Please consider contacting the hosts via Twitter and urging them to interview an MMT guest such as Stephanie Kelton, Warren Mosler, Bill Mitchell, and Randy Ray. The Twitter handles for the podcast and its hosts can be found in the show notes and in the social media shares for this episode. Thanks for your help in spreading the word. But for now, let's get right back to my conversation with Jackson Winter. Enjoy. Yeah, I think it's it's really. I mean, it's 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 probably a bit of a naive way to phrase it, but it just like sucks the the soul out of everything to to get up these these numbers of dollars or pounds or whatever whatever it's measuring it's 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of one of the most incredible things is I sort of can't even comprehend that there was a time when it wasn't like this. <laughs> we just we just treated people like human beings and, you know, took care of each other and stuff instead of trying to milk every dollar out of everyone and everything all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's the idea of commodifying people it's like a, it's a gamble. It's like, if you're commodifying another person, then you're simply taking a gamble that you're not going to be one of those people that are commodified. Like, you know, it's, uh, it's a very strange kind of lottery, I guess. Like if you're, if you're choosing to commodify the vast majority of people for your own service, then obviously you do not want to become part of that class right like you you are choosing to you have to you have to create a distinction between you and your class and those who are being commodified and like you know basically the the few and the many the many and the few of like death to the many is actual death death to the few is like becoming part of the many because they see those people as those people are worthy of commodifying I'm an actual human being. Yeah, I mean that—that's what we see in like having uh, in in Australia. We have like the unemployment uh, benefit is considerably below the poverty line, mm-hmm. and there's obviously a lot of argument against that. But then they're not going to change it because having those people in poverty, there's someone else. That's that's the threat. You, you've got to comply with with the command of the invisible hand because if you don't, you'll be one of them. You'll be cast out of society, essentially. You'll be under the poverty line and you don't want to be that. And mm-hmm. and to to challenge that puts you more in danger of being one of those people, of, of being cast out from society. Yeah, what, another book I've, I've read recently is... Uh, Oh, it's Freer, the pedagogy of the oppressed, and he's talking. Okay. He talks about if if the if you have a revolution, it's not enough to overthrow the oppressors and then become oppressors yourselves. You've just mm-hmm. swapped who's who's the oppressed and who's the oppressor. You have to join with the oppressed. You have to be one of them. You have to understand them. You have to you have to have them understand you and you have to work together to end the oppression it's not enough to just be to just change who's in charge it's not enough to say okay well yeah there's there's people living under the poverty line but but i escaped that um and i'm rich now mm-hmm. like well you you're just perpetuating the system mm-hmm. you're just getting lucky enough to be one of the one of the ones one of the few yeah yeah yeah. Um, all right. I'd like to switch a little bit uh, regarding the gold standard because like as MMTers were like, you know, gold standard is horrible and like proposals for balanced budgets and going back on the gold standard. It's just like anathema. It's just like even considering that is just like a horror show. Yeah. And yet, and at the beginning of the book, he talks about how the gold standard is the glue that held the world together. 
And it's this concept of, uh, let me back up a little bit. So, so what those in power were, did not want was global war, was war between the most powerful nations because that would affect the pocketbook. Yeah. They were totally fine with war between less powerful nations. They were totally fine with violence within a country with, you know, against the poor, against, against minorities, against whatever. So there's the difference between they were totally fine with violence. There was going to be, there was always violence. The, the diff, the question is, is that violence controlled or is that violence uncontrolled? And from their point of view, uncontrolled means war between global nations and that, Controlled violence means that they're in control of the violence. So they're the perpetuator. They're, they're, they are doing the violence. Uncontrolled violence is violence against them. So it's, it's like a, a combustion engine versus a bomb. A combustion engine is a controlled explosion. A bomb is an uncontrolled explosion. Yeah. They want controlled violence. And the gold standard somehow fits into that. Like the gold standard was, you know, just an arbitrary restriction that you know, kind of took a life on, on its own and, and it felt almost religious that it felt like, you know, money had worth because it was backed by gold. It was like, yeah, but we chose to link money to gold. Gold is, gold is finite, not under our control, but our choice to link our money to it is a human choice. So, but, but it, it had took on this magical quality where people thought it was natural to link their money to gold. So gold gold standard held the world together in some sense. Polanyi makes a big point of that once the gold standard crumbled, that that was a huge element that made global war more likely. So I am not totally clear on what exactly was good about the gold standard at the same time where we as MMTers the gold standard is anathema. So I'm wondering if, do you understand that? Yeah. I, I think there's a, uh, a part of that. Like I, I think you mentioned there was sort of a quasi religious element to it where we have the gold standard. We can, we can go and look in the vault and we know exactly how much gold we have, or we can go and look in another country's vault and we know how much gold they have. So we can say we've got more than you, and it's 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 completely arbitrary. But it's, um, I think Polanyi made a point of you couldn't go off the gold standard because you'd basically be excluded from world trade because everyone's on the gold standard, and so that's that enables everyone to trade with each other. Mm. And the only country that was able to exit that, or the, rather, the first country, was the UK because they had such an incredible economy and they could tolerate that they had, mm-hmm. you know, the empire. They were the top of that. They, they were, I actually thought it was the United States, but I, th- I thought UK was second, but it doesn't matter that they were the most powerful countries. Yeah. And so they were the top of the hierarchy. So they could go off it much more safely than other countries. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, we sort of saw that through the rest of the 20th century where, there's very much a thing of we, we then saw it going on to like you've got to liberalize your economy and you've got to have free markets and all of that stuff. And we saw that going on for the rest of the 20th century. And 
it's sort of the same thing of like we decide this is the rules we've got all the gold so you all have to have gold as well because we know that we've got more gold than you that that seems like it's a, a big factor in it and i know that was not specifically that but there was a similar thing leading up to the first world war with like the sort of stockpiling of armaments i know i know there was a big thing where basically for the first couple of decades of the 20th century the european powers were just like stockpiling the latest biggest and best weapons but they never got to try them out because they were deliberately trying to have peace mm. but it was sort of you know uh tensions were heating for decades and they're all trying to have the biggest and the best it's the same with the money and it's it's basically like a sort of pre-cold war cold war with armaments and money and it's it's they're trying to show off you know uh signal to each other that they're strong and powerful until eventually it, they have to test it out <laughs> and blow each other up <laughs> Well, I, I mean, right at the beginning of the book, it talks about balance of power. Balance, peace is defined as a balance of power where peace is only possible with two roughly equal powerful entities. And so the treaty of – so when the when Germany lost the First World War, they had the Treaty of Versailles, which said you can never have a military again, which made – peace impossible because it made the balance of power impossible, which was a major factor in, in contributing to the beginning of World War II. So I know you heard this on my, my audio, which I'll probably, I don't know, put at the end or something. There is an analogy of international balance of power with individual balance of power. So in, in international balance of power is Germany can't have a military. So clearly they're going to be screwed in some, in some ways. And that you know, Hitler came partially because of that, and then World War II became because partially because of that. So uh, Germany had no power, and the other countries had all the power because they were allowed to have a military, and that created an imbalance which made peace impossible, which made World War II more likely, it, almost guaranteed. And then on the individual level, there's inequality. So Jeff Bezos has all the power, and the workers at Amazon have no power. So workers being commodified have no power at all. Capital has all the power. So that is the same kind of an imbalance of power, which makes peace impossible, which requires the government to, to crush you know, the reactions that people give because they, they have no power and they're being abused in that way at work and whatever. And that is the reason for the climate crisis, yeah, because of that imbalance of power, and that goes back to the 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 ladder of of like what I was saying with like a school of teachers to principal to superintendent to on and on and on all the way up to the local government and so on up to the to the federal government. It's that same balance of power that is causing, you know, you no one can react to any micro aggression, any micro. Uh, exploitation. You can't react to it. And that's what builds up. And so when someone does react to one of them, it's always e easy to pull out of your pocket. Oh, that was just a small thing. What's the big deal? But it's just, you know, all of these things add up. So the international balance of power, I think really is analogous to the individual balance of power. 
kind of had a, a, a more broad point that I wanted to make, but I'll, I'll leave it there right now. Yeah, there's an example from Australia in a sort of political viewpoint is the the individual voter has their vote and maybe they can go out and campaign or volunteer or whatever and try and have a little bit more impact. But then there's at least one mining billionaire here who just because he has so much money went and started his own party and he ran a candidates in every electorate and he didn't win he didn't win a single seat but that wasn't the point the point was he then um funneled all of his support to the conservative party Mm. who do things that favor him Mm. so he's one person with an absolutely incredible amount of power just because he's got money Mm -hmm. and that's that's something that no no other citizen could ever have without literally billions of dollars. <laughs> um, mm. So yeah, there's that balance of power is just, yeah, it's, it's the capital is, is power. Once again, it's, it doesn't, it's not even like a bribe or anything like that. He's not going outside the system is absolutely hundred percent within the system. Just exercising the the power of it, capital. It is bribes. It's just legal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's um, yeah. It's yeah. It's truly incredible. And yeah, the the stuff about um, I think Polanyi talked a bit about how that that's the sort of liberalism led to fascism um across yeah. across Europe and and across the world. And and he made a, an interesting point that you know fascism. Well, I'm. I don't think he expressed it quite like this, but fascism today is associated with racism and white supremacy. But then uh, when when it first came out, there was like, well, there's fascists in Japan and there's fascists emerging and they're, they're not worried about the racial issue. It's all about the economics. Mm-hmm. And what they were basically doing, the common factor amongst all the fascists was they wanted to take control of the market of the capital of they wanted to have someone steering that invisible hand mm. and fascism was the way to do that and the places mm. where it was successful was where that was necessary and the places where it failed like uh Palani mentioned it failed in the uk because the fascists in the uk had a sort of uh, anti-patriotic uh stance that that didn't work for for most uh, Britons, but it worked in Germany because their economy was a shambles, and then and they couldn't have a military that that factor as well. Yeah, so I mean that's that's sort of the same thing. I mean here we had it with a a mining billionaire who's not a fascist, but he's he's very very right wing. Um, he's got he's got a candidate at the moment that's a, like a really quite fringe indeed uh he was expelled from the conservative party for being mm. too fringe so you know it's it's sort of getting there it's not quite there yet but uh, you can see you can sort of join the dots from from the sort of liberalism and the power over the economy and and how that leads to fascism Polanyi makes the amazing point where that that fascism the fascists don't get into power because they're powerful and convincing. 
they get into power because the economy is awful for people. Yeah. So wherever the economy is bad is where fascists can come into play. And if the economy gets good, fascists lose their power. Yeah. So it, it has nothing to do with the power of the fascists themselves. They're just filling a vacuum left by the self the the, the wreckage of the self regulating market. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we, we leave the market to to self regulate and and run blindly, and then it crashes. And where's where is our god now? We need someone to fill that mm. gap. Mm. Yeah. I get well. I got right at the end of the book. So the the last couple of chapters were about uh, basically what Polanyi thinks is a superior solution for the economy, and then he talks a bit about the fascism that that we just mentioned. But he mm-hmm. did he did sort of go into uh, like very briefly. I got the impression he thinks a, a planned economy would be better, and so I. Uh, I mean, I, I'm still sort of very new to all of that stuff. I don't really understand the the workings of a planned economy. I have been trying to understand stuff like, you know, s- just systems in general and how we get people to work together. And, and th- that's come a lot from MMT where the federal government has this incredible amount of power just as a, a result of being the currency issuer. And they, you know, they handcuff themselves and talk about debt and deficits and whatever else, and they hold themselves back from power. And you know, there's there's a lot of like democratic concerns about that and whatever else. And I, I understand all of that, but basically, I've been trying to understand. Okay, let's say the, the government was broadly good and they understood their spending power and all that stuff, what could they do? And how could they leverage their resources? How could they leverage their citizens and what their citizens can do to make the the country and the world a better place? Like we've got this problem with climate change. Like why why couldn't the government just say, well, let's all, here's our plan to fix it, do it. Like in a, in a magical world <laughs> that that would happen. So, yeah, so I was kind of interested in the sort of him talking about the planned economy. And, and I, I've definitely been trying to read a bit more about, okay, let's, all right, let's have a think about a planned economy, but maybe maybe a sort of decentralized planned economy. So we don't have the concern of like a sort of Soviet style, you know, totalitarian leader we Mm. we can have the sort of we have a goal instead of instead of chasing an economic goal we have a social goal uh we have uh, our goal is deal with climate change or our goal is end poverty and how do we direct our resources and labor to achieve that goal and how, like, could could a planned economy do that? So, yeah, that's that's sort of my next um, my next challenge in in what I'm reading and what I'm researching. I uh, I had a, a recent conversation um, a few episodes ago about Georgism, and he was talking about uh, unrelated to Georgism, but he was saying like, you know, people say online, you know, wherever people just say. You know, we should get rid of capitalism. We should replace it with socialism or, or whatever. And, and you, you kind of 
we're, you know, planned economy, Polanyi was saying planned economy. And, and it's just like, I think instead of, I think there are such obvious things that need to be done that we don't, I don't think we should be worrying about planned economy versus capitalism versus anything. Yeah. We should simply, obviously we need to, to stop commodifying people, stop commodifying land, treat people with, as people, as humans, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because we will not survive as a species until we do that. Deal with the climate crisis, give people health care, give people education. And that right there would be, you know, if we just did those things, the consequences of the, the cascade of consequences by doing all of those things would occupy us for at least a decade. So it's just like, you know, whatever system that ends up being, whether it's planned economy or whatever, it's just like the tasks at hand are so obvious that let's just do those things and then whatever happens, happens. That's kind of how I see it. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I'm, I'm trying, like I'm reading all of this stuff. I'm trying to research uh, all these different uh, systems and philosophers and economics and whatever else. But actually, fundamentally, what I'm really trying to get at is we have this really, there's like two or three really obvious existential crises. Uh, how do we funnel all of our resources and efforts into sorting those out and dealing with those? And yeah, there's just, I, I, I was saying to someone the other day, you know, I'll be, I'll be 95 on, on my deathbed saying, oh, if I just need to synthesize all these different authors and all their ideas, and then I'll finally have the solution for the ultimate perfect system. And it's, you know, it's not, it's not, uh, that's not really how things work. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I just asked Warren Mosler a few weeks ago, you know, like he was, uh, I, I, it, it doesn't matter the background, but, but it actually kind of made sense. We were talking about his going to college and whatever. And I was like, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up? And so, you know, what is he? He's like 73 now or something like that. And he said, I'm still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I think yeah I think that's totally right though I mean the thing is uh, we can we can look at all of these things and we can learn all these lessons from the past but it's not like I'm gonna I'm gonna go through some text by Marx or Polanyi or whoever else and go oh there it is there's the answer that's what it's all about let's just do that um you know we're We've got to just learn, and as we do new things, there will be new solutions that we can take lessons from the past and, and try and apply those to the future. But um, no one's got it all figured out, and we need to just make an effort to to solve those problems that we have. And the commodification of labor and land is is a roadblock to that. It's a, a hurdle that's distracting us and and holding us back. Right. Right. And, and there's nothing wrong with studying those things of planned economy and all that stuff. But that is, in my opinion, is secondary. That is, it is a worthy important thing to do, but you know, it's pretty obvious that people are dying in the streets, bleeding in the streets. So, you know, that to me is, is at least what I choose to make a top priority. But, um, for me, it's, it's just a thing of like, 
if if I read this enough of this stuff and if I can tell this to people, maybe they'll maybe they'll take me seriously and maybe they'll they'll start listening to me and saying, Yeah, we should do this stuff, but um that's not how it works either. <laughs> the people aren't not doing things not it's not because I haven't read enough books. <laughs> <laughs> I, you'll never know. You'll never know. You've got to keep trying. You, you, you can't prove it. You know, um, yeah, it's like, it's, um, you know, free, uh, regulated market versus unregulated market. You know, that the grand debate yeah. of between those two things, the grand, it's a, it's an, it's a centuries long battle to the death of regulated market versus unregulated market. And it's actually analogous to my 15 year old with, he wants time on his computer. He wants an unregulated childhood and I want him to have a regulated childhood. And it really is exactly like kind of proportionally speaking, the same kind of battle. He wants time on his computer and, you know, he does well in school and he does all of his jurors. So to some extent, I want to reward him with that. But if he had his way, we have had debates of, I want unlimited technology, unlimited technology. Okay. So let's try this for a couple of days tried it for a couple of days and we stopped him because we had to do something, whatever. It's like, no, I'm supposed to have unlimited. Now it's not. An, it's like the experiment can never end. Yeah. It's like, when, when it, when are you satisfied that you have had unlimited? And I think the answer is when I'm dead with a <laughs> computer keyboard under my fingers, that that's the only answer. And so therefore I, as a parent, I have to make a choice of, where is it reasonable to regulate and to not regulate? I have, it's just an arbitrary choice because according to him, even the smallest amount of telling him what to do is infringing on his freedom. And it's the same exact kind of, of, of battle. It's like, yeah. Anyway, I have, I have like a, a, a slightly, it might be a tangent, but I, I hope it's related. Um, <laughs> so I, I had sort of an, uh, a bit of an epiphany lately that there's, there's things about my childhood and, and I think everyone has, there's some sort of like, it's not quite a trauma, but there's, there's sort of things happen where your, your parents say, do X, Y, or Z. And that then is like, not what you want at all it's it's what you're saying of like you you're you're regulating the technology and what i realized is that the things about that that were so difficult for me was it was my goals were not the same as my parents goals so like one of the big things that i struggled with was uh in in my later years of school i basically stopped caring about mm -hmm. school and given now that i'm like i'm going back to uni and i'm i'm studying really hard it's clear that it's not it's not like i'm bad at learning or i'm bad at studying it's clear i just had different goals at the time and mm -hmm. i i've carried this sort of um emotional baggage of like Oh, my parents put so much pressure on me to to do well at school and and excel at school, and then that made me feel, uh, you know, whatever, uncomfortable or 
unhappy that I wasn't able to live up to that. And then I carried that with me for years afterwards. But then, of course, they did that. What kind of parents would they be if they're just like, yeah, just do whatever. Yeah, who cares? Mm. (laughs) Um, Of course, they wanted me to excel at school. It Mm. was just that my goals at the time were, were different. I wanted to go out with my friends or whatever else I was doing at the time. I think there's, I think there's sort of an analogy there to uh, you or I, our goals might be, okay, let's fix the climate crisis. But then the people who are sort of submerged in the, in the, the race for capital, it, it, I'm sure that's a factor for them and I'm sure they care about that, but, but the capital has got to come first. The capital mm. is the, the priority. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's, yeah, I think that's the sort of the thing that I sort of struggle with is I'm sure everyone shares that goal. No one's, no one's out there deliberately trying to pollute the climate, but just getting people on the same page of like getting this, getting the same priority of dealing with the climate or dealing with poverty is always secondary to to capital or even some other things as well. Protecting privilege. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's protecting privilege. It's I think of all the people that, that, you know, Biden, oh, I'm so excited for Biden, he's not Trump. <laughs> and it's like, he's not doing anything. I mean, he's not, not not doing anything, but I'll just I'll just I'll just give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he's not doing stuff, as opposed to actually making things worse. Yeah, you know, he's not doing stuff. Biden is not doing stuff, and all those people who are pushing for Biden, oh, Biden, he's not Trump. I don't see anybody screaming that he's not doing anything for climate change. That he appointed, that he appointed uh, John Kerry. You know, we have to let the arsonists save us from climate change. Who is in charge of the U.S. Uh, you know, battle against climate change. And Biden just yesterday said that uh, there's not going to be any federal response to COVID anymore with this new whatever variant that, that we're not going to the states are going to have to handle this. And I don't see any of those people that were pushing for Biden to be elected. And now they're so excited that he's there. I don't see any of them angry at Biden because they don't care. Yeah. Because they have their privilege. They have their house. They have their car. They have their insurance that they can afford. But they have a, they have a representative that has been fighting for health care since for a year before he even announced his candidacy. Where the hell is the health care? Now he's talking about inflation. That, oh, I want health care, but, but I'm worried about inflation. And it's just – it's protecting privilege. And, and it is, you know, that's horrible. But – they are made to do that. You know, society makes them do that. And the, uh, um, you know, uh, mainstream economics also contributes to that, that they, they are woke people. They want, they want <laughs> everyone to have health care. They want everyone to have health care. And they love the fact that he's fighting for health care. But we still don't have it. And I don't see anybody screaming that we still don't have it because they have it. Yeah. And they also, I think there's a factor of that they fear that if other people get it, that they're going to be, have to be taxed out of existence and they're going to lose their privilege because of that. So they love the idea of these things, but they don't actually care about them because they're comfortable. Their head is down. They're, not, they're, they're trying to not ruffle any feathers because they're making it okay right now. Um, so I, I, I was somehow connected to what you were saying. I kind of Yeah, I think that's... 
that's really oh so so yeah you were saying so how do we get people on the same page is what you were saying how do we get them to they are so on the treadmill of you know this desperation to keep the little that they have that they are made to be that way that desperate that you know how do we get how do we reach people who are made deliberately desperate in this way you know, that that's how it connected to what you said sorry well in that in that in that uh, specific one like you mentioned the they they believe in the the taxpayer myth i mean that's that's the mechanism is they say if if someone else if we help someone else it means we have to take money from you it means you you have to you get taken down a peg and they get raised up a peg and now you're just the same as them and you're you're on the bottom rung mm-hmm. and it's it's like a thing of like I, I noticed it a lot uh, last year. I first I first started to notice that it's when people are they're not on the bottom rung, they're on like just above the bottom rung. They're nowhere near the top of the ladder, but mm-hmm. they're not on the bottom rung, and then mm-hmm. so they're happy and and comfortable, or, or you know at least relatively. They're not starving. Yeah, they're just one step above. There's someone below them, basically. As long as there's mm-hmm. someone below them, then they're they're happy that they're not at the bottom which is like wow that's um very low bar to to get across there was a a very good analogy i got from a a friend uh several weeks ago where he was saying uh, like it's like a cruise ship where the the state the uh the engine room has you know the oligarch protector biden or whoever in there and then the first class is the the oligarchs, and second class is you know whatever we'll say the middle class, and and then the steerage is everybody else, all the poor people. And it's like he made the analogy of you know everything's on top; they, they've taken everything, everything's on top, and the boat, boat is going to capsize. But it's also it's also every level looks up to what they wish they could be, and looks down to what they fear being but yeah. there's also a huge element of propaganda in all directions so they don't actually see down they see the propaganda of what they fear is down they don't see actually what is up they see the i guess you know the commercials of of beautiful people smiling all the time of what they you know be, you know they're they're hundred thousand bears but they're not millionaires so they're poor yeah they're millionaires but they're not 10 millionaires or 100 millionaires so they're poor you know they're struggling, um, so it's it's just this. I thought I thought that was a really good analogy of, yeah. of this this boat. Yeah, I think I think there was um, there was a, I, I think I, I I noticed of like there's this sort of all the all the sort of conspiracy theories about you know, there's the Illuminati or you know there's whatever group is uh, pulling the strings doing all these acts of evil. Uh, controlling everyone, whatever else. But then actually the, the reality is sort of even more horrible that no one's pulling the strings. Everyone's just mm. doing these tiny little uh, mm. contributions to evil in some way, in in whatever tiny little scope. that Whatever they're doing might not be evil, but it serves someone else who is evil or is mm. doing something evil. And we all just have to go along with this to keep our jobs. Cause if we don't keep our jobs, then 
you know, we'll go hungry or homeless or whatever else. And we all have Mm -hmm. to stay on this treadmill. So we all have to do these tiny little sort of, we can cope with this tiny little portion of evil. That's okay for us to sleep at night. If we did any more, that'd be bad. I was, I was reading a thing about Facebook and what, what goes on behind the scenes there. And like, there's a lot of that that's just like there's some really bad stuff going on and they know it's going on, but everyone's just doing a tiny little portion of it. So it's it's important for them to keep their job. And of course it is. We shouldn't expect any individual worker to sacrifice themselves to stand up to the dominance of Facebook. But when there's, when all of those workers combine, they combine to make something awful and that's happening across the globe. And maybe some people are are evil and are deliberately doing evil, but actually most people are just trying to feed their kids. Yeah, and and, uh, I don't remember how this came up recently. It was if you give someone bad data, then no matter how good faith they are, they will do bad things. Yeah. If you give people bad information or a bad something, if you give bad information to somebody, that's, 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 has horrible information or whatever, misleading information. And then that is their job to use that information to actually do something. Even if they act in total good faith, they are doing bad stuff yeah. because simply because they have bad information or a bad basis or a bad foundation. Yeah. And, and, and even that's subservient to capital and that like, well, that's even the person generating the data, if it's like whoever, built the software that generates that data and mm. did it poorly because they weren't paid enough because the mm-hmm. the boss didn't want to raise their wages and so it generates mm-hmm. bad data and you know it's it's clear like there's there's a fundamental when we're trying to get the cheapest version of everything and generate the most capital out of everything it's going to give us probably the worst version of everything mm. really <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah so Essentially, we should have goals beyond the commodification of land and labor. We should have targets. We should have, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the difficult part of there is who decides that? How do we collectively decide what those targets are? Yeah, I mean, what else is there except for a battle? It's always a battle. Yeah. But but there's no point in having a battle if if one side has no power. There's no there's no point. And actually, mainstream economics, a big point of mainstream economics, is pretending that it's equal, and then you negotiate as if you're equals. When in reality, obviously, we have nothing and they have everything. So what's the point of going to the table at all? Um, that's a big point of of mainstream economics is defining our current state as natural. And if we if we demand better wages, for example, then we are disturbing the natural order of things because they have defined the current state as natural, even though they have a, you know, a 10 mile head start in a, in a, in a 10 mile race. And we're still behind the starting line with, with broken glass on the ground and no shoes and misleading signs. And, you know, but, but now it's, but now we're going to have an even race from the, from our current position. (laughs) Um, or even we don't even know we're in a race. We, we're, we're so busy trying to just stay on the treadmill. We don't realize that there's a competition and someone else is winning. Right, right. Or we're on the treadmill and, and everything's moving by us, but we're actually not moving at all because yeah. <laughs> we're on the treadmill. Um, yeah. Oh, oh, you, were, you said something. Oh, 
conspiracy theory of like, you know, there's a puppet master in the background, which is not, it's like, we're, there's no conspiracy to do evil things. We're just choosing to do evil things collectively. Yeah. Um, but in the beginning of the book, he actually talks about how there is, there was hot finance that the gold standard existed and was being controlled to some extent with an actual, what do you call it? Uh, finance people that had this global reach that actually had this connection to like every government or, or most governments. And it was because of them that they were a major factor in making the gold standard possible and making, you know, holding the world together. Do you have any, do you have any memory of that or? I don't, I don't remember that bit specifically, but um, like I, I was saying before, there was sort of, and I know that going up to the first world war, there was like, all these European powers were like stockpiling armaments and stuff. And right. there's, there's, there was sort of like one arms dealer who was going around all these countries and saying, oh, I've just sold 10 million, the latest rifles to Germany. And then France goes, oh, well, we better have the, the one better than that. And then he'll go back to Germany and says, oh, France has just bought all these even better guns. You, you better <laughs> one up them. Hmm. so yeah like it it does seem like all right there's not uh one puppet master pulling all the strings but there's certainly in some like some niche armaments or finance or whatever there are people who are in in pursuit of capital they are manipulating people they are manipulating systems because because the pursuit of capital is amoral they don't need to worry about what are the long-term consequences of this it's like well okay the goal of life is to get money and if we implement this system of the gold standard where i'm broadly in control of it then i'll get a lot of money and i win (laughs) i win Mm -hmm. capitalism Mm -hmm. like well good like fine that's how the system works why wouldn't you do that? And if, I mean, that's sort of the inevitable conclusion of if we remove the humanity from labor and everything and just make it a commodity, then of course that's going to happen. What else is there? Yeah. Uh, uh, you actually, you, uh, does the name Assad Zaman ring a bell? Mm, no, I don't think so. Okay, you linked to a summary of the Great Transformation on Twitter, and it, that summary is written by Assad Zaman. Uh, and I haven't read it yet, I, but I just noticed that you linked to this, and it's you know just like a post from 2019, and uh, it's a summary of the Great Transformation. Um, the reason that I'm reading this book is because I am working with Assad Zaman. Okay. <laughs> to, to. He has seven lectures, which I'm going to – he has seven lectures on, on the Great Transformation. Yeah. And I've been working with him for nine months now on uh, creating uh, a course. The course is called Historical Context for Real World Economics. Um, and it's it's not MMT directly. There's a little bit, but there, it's not MMT directly. It's it's historical, realistic his, history of great uh, cause of the Great Depression, the Great Financial Crisis, and so on. So we have five lectures out there 
five lectures are on their way to coming out. But the next seven lectures are going to be on the Great Transformation. On his yeah. on his video lectures, there's seven of them on this book. And so the reason I'm reading this book is to in preparation for that. Um, so just coincidentally, he he wrote this summary. I have not listened to the to the lectures yet. I'm going to um, that that's my next step is listen to these lectures, and then hopefully, I'm going to interview him on this. So this is this me and you are going to be a layperson conversation about this. Yeah, and then I'm going to talk with him. You know, a more authoritative or whatever conversation about it as well. Hopefully, I, I hope he's going to do it. Um, so um, it's just it was pretty cool seeing that you happen to just coincidentally linked to something exactly by him. So, yeah. So, uh, that's it. Anything, uh, anything else you feel needs to be said before we go? No, I mean, yeah, I got, I got like super excited reading this book. I've, I've, it, it wasn't like it was, uh, revolutionary for me and that it was teaching me a bunch of stuff. I didn't know there was, there was definitely some bits I didn't know, but it was sort of, it was sort of validating in this, like there'd be, I knew there'd been these sorts of like functional finance and stuff like that from the 1940s and this sort of MMT stuff had, had deep roots that went back a long way. And then reading this, it's like, uh, he, he doesn't really go into any MMT stuff specifically apart from the gold standard really. And it, yeah, I think he briefly mentioned functional finance right at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, yeah, it's, it's really all there. And one of the major reasons why we're not, we don't have this understanding in the orthodoxy today is essentially because the Montpellier society and, and neoliberalism mm-hmm. and, you know, all of that stuff just coming along and doing this sort of uh, deference to the free market. And the, um, I, I think you mentioned earlier that there was the bit about the free market requires so much control. I mean, we saw that with neoliberalism. We had to go and overthrow Chile and install a dictatorship to be able to have a free market. Like, it's it's so it's sort of so counterintuitive and so and so obvious at the same time. Like, it's um, yeah, it's incredible to see. So, it's it, reading this book was sort of quite validating to to see that like. Yeah, we don't we don't need to pretend like MMT is some sort of fringe theory. It, this stuff really goes back a long way and has has its roots in uh, a, a real understanding of centuries of economics. So yeah, I, I felt really excited about that. Well, I, it's really cool that that I influenced you to read this despite having a long list. That was really that was a really nice surprise. And I, I had only read the chapter one when you said that you were basically done. And I was like, <laughs> "Well, wait, let me catch up." Um, but that that was really nice. Um, he really is. You called him a proto MMTer, and I think that's quite accurate. Like he 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 does mention functional finance near the end. He talks about credit money versus hard money. Uh, I don't think he uses the term hard money, but credit money versus whatever, commodity money. Credit yeah. money versus commodity money. State money versus global money. Yeah. Where, st- where state money credit is necessary to buffer, to be like a shock absorber to the rigidity of the gold standard, global gold standard. Otherwise, your economy will just 
go, it will just be horrible. And Mises, um, Ludwig von Mises, who's uh, whatever his version of economics is called, I forget. Um, he was, he was like, uh, Polanyi kind of makes fun of him saying, if you listen to Ludwig von Mises, you would eliminate all central banks, eliminate all credit money and have hard money, have commodity money in within every country as well. And he said, if you followed his advice, every country would become a heap of ruins. Um, uh, but he, he uh, regarding MMT, he mentions he meant so he mentions cre- credit money versus commodity money. That credit money is necessary for in a country. He mentions that money is obviously a a creature of the state. He doesn't use that term, but he he yeah. essentially says money is a obviously comes in because government chose for it to come in. Yeah, he really is like I I didn't notice anything. I didn't notice anything that I was like you that's wrong that's not that's not economically accurate like everything that he said about economics was completely mmt compatible that i can recall yeah i mean i mean i think the only bit was um he was advocating for the the planned economy and i think mmt is pretty agnostic on that front but otherwise yeah 100 percent, he's totally compatible with mmt yeah 40 1944 so yeah um uh okay Thank you for coming on and talking about this. Thank you for taking my advice and reading the book. Thanks for recommending it. Yeah, uh, this really is like, this is a big deal. This is really, I, I haven't read all the other things that you have read. I presume that for you, this is more of putting everything together. I, I for me, it was like a lot of different things that I had just never, really never heard before. Um, so yeah, no, thank you for doing this. And sure. It's been nice. Thanks for thanks for coming on. Yeah, it was yeah, it was good to chat. I, I'm really glad to have. I've been reading all this stuff and very sort of um, okay. I read this on to the next thing, and it's nice to to sort of talk to someone about it and and contextualize things. And I, I really feel like it helps deepen my understanding of things when I can just have a bit of time to say, "Hey, did you get the same impression as I did? Did I understand mm-hmm. this properly?" So yeah, that's really good. That's good. You know, there's there's not really an end point, but um, yeah, that's that's where I'm at at the moment, and and it's all in service of how how do we get people to all work together a bit nicer and understand each other more, so we can we can uh, all work together to service our mutual goals. All right, Jackson, thanks a lot for coming on. It was really nice talking with you, and yeah. I will see you back on I guess Twitter and Facebook. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, I'll talk to you later. Music for this show is done by Rec Tech. You can find Rec Tech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. Thank you for listening to the show. See you next time on Historically.